Morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 2, and then to 10 through 11, and then finally to 17 through 21. Hear now the word of God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests. Went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And when it, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Shopping for top of the line soccer. Carefully examined them, and I uh, I l pulled up a picture of these cleats uh, on the Nike website and compared the picture with the shoes I had in hand. Everything seemed to have checked out. The studs were in their rightful place. The laces were also aligned with what was on the screen. Uh, the material felt real and genuine. And just when I was about to put away the shoes in the box, I noticed one small discrepancy. On the back of the heel on the Nike website was a tiny swoosh. But on the back of my heels on my lap, there was no swoosh. Immediately, my face turned flush as I realized that I had been duped, I reached out to the seller, complaining, what you sold me were fakes. His response was, of course they're fake. 
Why else would they be so cheap? I was livid at his response. Thankfully, eBay has a good return policy and I got my money back. Why do I talk about this disappointing experience? Well, as much as counterfeits exist out there in the marketplace, counterfeits also exist in the church. The Bible tells us that inside the church are sheep and goats wheat and tares, that not until the end of time, when Jesus comes again, will we be able to discover who really belongs to the Lord and who doesn't. In perhaps one of the scariest passages in all the Bible, you have Matthew 7, 21 through 23. In these verses, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This passage is scary because it tells us that people who look like they're Christian really are not. It tells us that people who think they are Christian really are not. These people perform good works. They go to church. They serve. They even go on mission trips. But at the end of their lives, Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. No one demonstrates this scary reality more than Judas Iscariot. He looked the part. He played the part. But he never was a part of God's kingdom. He never really knew Jesus. And today we're going to study Judas and more specifically do an autopsy on his betrayal of Jesus. And in studying what that looks like, studying what motivated him, I am hoping that we might repent of any Judas that might linger in us as we see the difference between a counterfeit Christian and a genuine one. Now Mark begins chapter 14 with verses 1 and 2 telling us that the chief priests and the scribes face a dilemma. You see, the chief priests and the scribes want to get rid of Jesus. They want to arrest him and kill him. The problem is Jesus is just too popular. His popularity has never been as high as it is now. And so they knew that by arresting Jesus in public, it would cause a PR nightmare. The masses would revolt and Rome would not be happy with that. And so they had to find a way where they could arrest Jesus in private when no one was looking. But who would have that type of intel? Who was close enough with Jesus who would know where he would be in private? Who would know his favorite 
hideouts. Enter Judas. In verse 10 through 11, Judas informs the chief priests that he is their man, that he does have that kind of intel. He tells them that he's one of the trusted 12, part of Jesus's inner circle. He knew where Jesus liked to withdraw, where he liked to refresh himself. And so Judas is the answer to the leader's dilemma. They are a perfect match. Now what underscores their unity, what underscores the tie that binds them is the fact that Mark uses the same word to describe the chief priests with Judas. In chapter 14, verse one, Mark says that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him. And then in verse 11, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. And so both are linked in that they both seek to destroy Jesus. And so this causes us to ask, why Judas? Why betray your Lord? If Jesus was a jerk, then maybe we'd understand. If Jesus was a serial killer, then perhaps we'd even praise Judas. But Jesus was sinless in every way. Judas watched Jesus welcome the little children and place them on his lap. He watched Jesus lay his hands on lepers and outcasts. He watched Jesus shower love upon the unlovable, mercy on the unmerciful, and welcome those who were unwelcomed. Not only that, but as someone who was with Jesus both in public and private, Judas knew that Jesus was not a fraud. His love was not an act. His kindness, not a performance. They say you should never meet your heroes because you'll be disappointed. But with Jesus, the more time you spend with him, the more enamored, the more you respect him. Judas had never met anyone so pure, so wise, so kind, so courageous, so loving. And so why, Judas? Why betray your Lord? The quick and easy answer, the simple answer is to say that Judas betrayed Jesus for money. After all, that was the agreement. I give you Jesus, you give me money. More specifically, Matthew tells us that Judas received 30 coins of silver. However, to say that he betrayed Jesus for money may be overly simplistic. You see, if money was the reason, then how do you explain only 30 coins of silver? If you were to translate that amount to today, that would be worth approximately $5,000. Now, it's nothing to sneeze at, but you and I know that $5,000 isn't life-changing money. It's not like Judas can suddenly retire. It's not like he can buy a business, buy a home, or even a car. You could barely buy a dozen eggs with that money today, right? And so... 
What's going on? Well, given the insignificant amount, I believe that there's something deeper going on in Judas's heart. I believe that at the root of his betrayal is bitter disappointment. Judas was bitterly disappointed in Jesus. He felt that Jesus failed him. How? Well, when Jesus first arrived on the scene and invited Judas to join and become one of the 12, Judas was ecstatic. He was excited. Why? Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the promised deliverer of Israel, then that would lead to earthly fame, power, wealth, and glory. If Jesus became the king of Israel, surely he would reward Judas handsomely. Perhaps he would give Judas a plot of land. Perhaps he would install him in a prestigious political position. Maybe that's why Jesus asked me to to be responsible over the disciples' finances. Didn't Jesus say that he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much? Maybe Jesus is grooming me to be the director of the nation's treasury. So he thought. You see, for Judas, Jesus was a long-term investment. For the first few years, yes, life would be hard as they lived off the charity of their followers. But once Jesus became king, the ROI is off the charts. Whatever suffering I endure now will be more than rewarded later. However, as Judas spent time with Jesus, he began to doubt his plan. Jesus would do and say things that would confuse him. He remembered the time where Jesus spoke about how he would be betrayed and how he would die. What in the world, Jesus? How can you talk about your death even before you're made king? Doesn't make sense. Judas would be alarmed and confused when Jesus used to describe that his kingdom is not of this world. What is that supposed to mean? Judas was confused when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, not on a horse like victorious kings would do, but rather mounted on a lowly donkey. What's that all about? Judas would be even more confused when Jesus started talking about the destruction of the temple. What's going on? I thought the Messiah was to restore the glory of the temple, not destroy it. And so things started added up and Judas came to the painful realization that Jesus is not the Messiah I thought he'd be. He came to the painful realization that he has wasted three years of his life, that while his friends have been advancing their careers, he has basically stalled his own ambition. 
Could it be that Judas betrays Jesus because he felt betrayed by Jesus? Of course, whatever expectations Judas had of Jesus are purely his own. Jesus never promised earthly fame, power, and glory. We know that Judas projected his own earthly desires onto Jesus and created Jesus into his own image. In Genesis 1, the Bible begins by telling us that God created man in his own image. Unfortunately, due to the fall, that script has been flipped. We now, in our sinful state, create God in our image, projecting our desires and our wishes onto him. Now we call the shots, we dictate to him what he needs to do for us to follow him. We set the terms. And that, I believe, is at the heart of counterfeit Christianity. At the heart of a counterfeit Christian is the belief that God is a means to a greater end, where you follow God and obey him in hopes that he will do for you what your heart desires. It's a quid pro quo type of relationship. God, I'll go to church, I'll serve, I'll even give some offering, so long as you protect my family, so long as you give me good health, so long as you bless my finances. In other words, counterfeit Christians obey because they find God useful. It's a utilitarian approach to God. Now you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't God's bountiful in love and gifts? He's the giver of every perfect gift. Doesn't God desire to bless his people? And the answer is, of course, yes. But if that's all that God means to you, you're missing him. If God is nothing more than a divine butler who exists to make your life comfortable, you're missing him. If God is nothing more than a divine genie who exists to grant your earthly wishes and desires, you're missing him. There's a big difference between using God and following him. We all know what it's like to be used, right? We've all had that painful discovery that that friend we have really is not our friend, that he or she is not really interested in you as much as using you. There's one guy in college who never went to class, but always right before midterm, right before finals, he'd give me a call. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? How are you? Man, we need to meet up someday. Hey, do you think I can borrow your notes? Only time he ever reached out to me was to borrow my notes. Was he a true friend? Not really. Spouses, 
Perhaps one day your spouse is unusually nice to you. He's attentive to your needs. He listens well. He's kind and gracious, unusually responsive. That evening, you're intimate together. But the very next day, he's back to his grumpy, unattentive self, making you feel what? Used. Or perhaps you have that family member who only calls when they need money, who only contacts you when they're in crisis. They never call to see how you're doing. They're never concerned about your life or your welfare. The relationship is oh so one-sided. You feel used. In such relationships, with such experiences, we feel dehumanized, don't we? We feel dehumanized because we're reduced to a commodity where all that's interesting to the other person is what we can do for them. In a healthy relationship, both parties feel known and loved. Both parties feel pursued and cherished. Anything less is dehumanizing for us because we are much more than a resource. Now, if being used feels dehumanizing for us, how much more belittling is it for God? when we only treat him as, what can you do for me? This is why Judas never had a saving relationship with Jesus. Jesus was nothing more than a commodity to him. He was only a means to a greater end. And what enables us to grasp all the more and picture the difference between a counterfeit Christian and a genuine one is when you compare Judas with Mary. You may have noticed that in the scripture reading, there's a gap. Verse 1 and 2 begins with the chief priest's dilemma in trying to arrest Jesus in private. And then it skips 3 through 10, and then jumps to 11 and 12 where Judas approaches the chief priest. And so what you have is a gap in the narrative. And so what happened in between? If you were here last Sunday, you know Mary's offering of the alabaster jar of nard that she pours over Jesus. Mark frames the narrative so that we compare Mary with Judas. And when you compare them, what do you see? Well, let's start with the similarities. Both were close to Jesus. Both were confidants of Jesus. Both served Jesus. On the outside, solely judging by their actions, both Judas and Mary looked identical. But that's where the similarities end. When you look on the inside, what you find are two completely different individuals. Judas obeyed Jesus so that he can get something from Jesus. Mary obeyed him so that she can get more of Jesus. 
For Judas, Jesus was a means to a greater end. For Mary, Jesus was both the means and the end. Jesus himself was her reward. Judas found Jesus useful. Mary found him beautiful. When I think of the difference between Judas and Mary, I think of my relationship to the piano. It's evolved over the years. Back when I was a child, I detested the piano. I hated it. It was the number one source of fights between me and my mom. I remember playing and crying at the same time, and my fingers would slip on the keys because they were wet, and I'd make a mistake, and my mom would yell at me, and I would cry even more, right? And so in the beginning, I played out of fear. I didn't want my mom to get upset with me. And then in middle school, my relationship changed to the piano. Now it was more out of duty. I had been playing for so long, I was used to the rhythm. Not only that, but now I was playing it to please my mom. I knew how much it meant for her, as she would at times ask me, Jeffrey, if you want to quit, you can quit. And I would look at her, and she was serious. But I could tell there was just so much like angst behind her. Please don't say, I want to quit. And I would say, I'll keep playing. And the look of relief. I played for my mom. In high school, my motivation changed. Now I was playing out of ambition. Now friends would listen and praise me. Now I thought, hey, this would look good on my college transcript or my high school college application. But today, when I play, I play for the music. I play because Beethoven, Mozart, Chopin created beautiful music. I play because the music itself is my reward. And I think that's how God wants us to relate to him. Where we follow him, obey him, worship him. Not to please anyone else, not out of duty or even selfish ambition. But because worshiping him singing to him, spending time with him, is its own reward. Children, I know a lot of you have grown up going to church, and you did it because mom and dad wanted you to. If you don't, they'll get mad at you. But I'm here to say, one day, we want you to go because God himself is your reward. Where worshiping him would fill your cup and be your new motivation. Now I understand that by talking about the difference between counterfeit Christians and genuine Christians, it can make us feel a bit uneasy. The last thing we want to experience 
is for Jesus to say to us, I never knew you. And so this may be unsettling because as I talk about Judas's relationship to Jesus, you can't help but see parallels in your own life. Wait, I think that's me. You can't help but realize that in your relationship with God, the only time you really go to him is in crisis, is when your life is uncomfortable, is when you're suffering, when you're down and out. But the moment life goes well, you stop praying. You stop going to church, communing. You can't help but realize that in your prayer life, 95% of your prayer time is filled with asks. Lord, help me, give me, I need. And yet, how much of your prayer time is filled with praise and adoration? As you look back at your relationship with God, you can't help but realize that major the majority of your relationship with God is you asking God to fill your needs. And yet, when was the last time you told God, help me to serve you? You see, if we're honest, there's a bit of Judas in all of us, is there not? We, too, use God manipulate God. We do treat him as if we're the center of the universe and he is beneath us. Thankfully, there's still hope for us sinners. You see, after Judas comes to the agreement to betray Jesus, something happens. Passover happens. Jesus gathers his disciples around for one last meal. And he says something shocking. In verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Talk about a stunning declaration. One of you is going to betray me. And then he says in verse 19, it's one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now what's remarkable about this scene isn't so much Jesus declaring that one of them will betray him. But what I find remarkable is the fact that Jesus does not single Judas out. If I were Jesus, I would point my finger at Judas and say, you, I know what you just did. I'd condemn him on the spot. I'd humiliate him, call him out. I can't believe you just agreed to betray me after all I've done to you. If there's ever a moment to judge Judas, it would be now. But Jesus is intentionally vague. One of you, I'm not going to say who. He's, he's intentionally ambiguous. Why? 
Don Carson says this. This is Jesus' final act of love for Judas. Jesus doesn't condemn Judas. He wants Judas to repent. He's giving Judas one last moment to repent and come to his senses. To the betrayer, you're going to regret this for the rest of your life. Don't do it. Even after all that Judas conspired to do, Jesus desires repentance. He desires relationship. Do you see why Christians find Jesus beautiful? What kind of God repays our sins with mercy? What kind of God repays our betrayal over and over again with love? This is the reason why Jesus goes to the cross he goes to the cross to die for our selfish sins. He goes to the cross so that he can absorb upon himself the hundreds of times of our callous usury of him. This morning, Jesus pursues relationship with you. He knows how we like to use him and treat him like a commodity. He knows how we treat him as a, a simple servant and ring our bell whenever we're in need. It's humiliating, it's demeaning, but in his amazing love, he desires a living, personal relationship with you where you can know him and love him, and he can know you and love you. He desires to delight in you so that you can delight in him. So to all the Judases out there, including myself, may we repent of our selfish, self-centered ways. May we ask God to forgive us and to restore the order of our life so that God takes his rightful place in the throne of our hearts where he becomes our chief reward and not just a means to something else. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask for forgiveness because we have it all wrong, Lord. We often act, Lord, as if we are in charge and you exist for our comfort, for our glory, for our pleasure. Lord, help us to see that there is no greater treasure, reward, delight than you. And may our lives be aligned accordingly where we live for your glory, where you are not only the means of our life, but the end, our chief reward. We thank you 
for the story of Judas as well as Mary. We thank you, O Lord, that even in our sinfulness, you still pursue us. We pray, Father, that all of us here would turn to you and experience your forgiveness and experience your delight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.